This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. A League Cup final in England, El Gran Derby in Spain, and the start of the 27th season of Major League Soccer. There's plenty for us to talk about on today's pod, but sadly, as geopolitical crisis unfolds in Eastern Europe, we'll begin our show by discussing UEFA and soccer's reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Heath Pierce alongside James Benj and Jonathan Johnson. The Kegel Lasso Weekend preview begins right now. What is up, everyone? Uh, welcome to the Kegel Lasso Pod Weekend preview. I'm joined by none other than Jonathan Johnson and James Benj. James Benj, we'll start with you. We'll just get straight into it. UEFA is going to hold an extraordinary meeting on Friday over Russia-Ukraine conflict and whether to stage the UCL final in St. Petersburg. There's also other implications with regard to the national teams and things like that. What are you hearing on your end? Yeah, I mean, this this extraordinary general meeting, which will happen at uh, 4 a.m. Eastern time. So I think by the time a lot of our listeners hear it, it will have happened. So you will know. But uh, the overwhelming expectation, it should be confirmed tomorrow, is that uh, St. Petersburg will be stripped of the Champions League final now. Uh, I don't expect that to come with an announcement as to which uh, which league, which stadium will replace it. That's a little way down the line. And UEFA, from what I'm hearing, will kind of make that decision based on which teams are in the latter stages of the competition and where would be an appropriate venue to hold it. London at the moment is viewed as quite a strong possibility. Um, there's four stadia there that could host it. And, you know, yes, Wembley and, and others, has been, as has been said elsewhere, have, have got other events, other games scheduled that day. But, you know, those could be moved, I believe, is the expectation for a Champions League final. But the London Stadium as well will be very interested. As you mentioned as well there, you know, there are an awful lot of other things to untangle in this meeting. Um, they will be discussing Russia's upcoming World Cup qualifiers. They're due to play at home to Poland. And if they won that game, they would be playing another home game. I, I don't see how any of them can go ahead. There's also more international tournaments coming up. Can Russia play in the Nations League? Can uh, the Russian women's team, can they go to Euro 2022 this summer, the women's Euros? Um, that's in England. <laughs> I don't think so is the answer. Um, you know, and of course, you know, much more specifically, there is Spartak Moscow are still going to be involved in the Europa League, uh, possibly Zenit as well. We're taping this before the final round of of qualifying games. And then there's the Gazprom sponsorship, a Russian state-owned energy firm that have been, you know, synonymous with the Champions League. It's the sort of ironic nickname of the Champions League in, in the UK. People will call it the Gazprom because it's so been so synonymous with it for, for a decade. You know, will that sponsorship be unpicked? I think that there's going to be work done towards getting, you know, getting that sponsorship out of there. A lot of TV broadcasters, I'm sure CBS would be one of them, wouldn't want to be advertising for Gazprom at a time when Russia is uh, undertaking war on Ukraine. So, you know, there's a lot to unpick here. The, the big headline news, though, is that, but you know, the Champions League final will be moved. And I think by the time our listeners hear this, it, they will probably have heard that being made official. JJ, are you hearing the same things on your end? Is there anything you want to add uh, contextually to, to, to what uh, Benji just said? Yeah, absolutely. I just uh, I think James has said it pretty well already, and uh, and he's been covering the piece for the website today. Uh, you know, obviously, just. Uh, you know, waiting really with uh, with, with bated breath as to, to what the decision will be, um, sort of in the in in the long term. As James said, it's probably unlikely that they'll immediately name a, a, a final venue. But uh, you know, there is you know, there's so many potential complications. I mean, we will see what happens with uh, Zenit when they face Real Betis a couple of hours after we tape this. Uh, you know, because that has the potential to make things uh, you know pretty complicated uh, as well. Well, listen, let's let's shift our focus uh, moving forward, unless there's anything else you guys wanted to, to, to add on that. Uh, obviously, Jimmy Conrad's not with us today, but we're going to throw up um, some uh, betting tips along the way if you guys want to jump in on those and kind of give your take on something. I don't have the mathematician uh, capabilities of Jimmy Conrad or whatever website he uses to put a bunch of numbers together to create 
uh, some odds. But we'll go through some of these things. Let's start with the Carabao Cup final. Chelsea versus Liverpool. Uh, it is... Is the Tuka Lukaku, uh, James Benj, is the Tuka Lukaku relationship irreparable? Uh, it, it, I mean, it, it seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse, but want to get your take on, on whether you think that's irreparable um, or if we might actually just see him get the start for the weekend and continue to try to see if he works out considering how much they paid for him. See, the interpersonal thing, from everything I hear, it's, it's not that much of a problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, Lukaku... So you mean it's perform- those- more performance-based or system-based? Uh, yeah, it just, just just form. It isn't fitting. And I think that, that that's kind of the real problem is that, you know, the way that Chelsea want to play, and you saw this especially on Tuesday night when they went back to Tuchel's favoured 3-4-3, it needs whoever that centre-forward is to be someone that can drop deep, can, can kind of flick the ball on, as Havertz did so well for Christian Pulisic. Um and that's not Romelu Lukaku's game. Lukaku likes to be running at goal with the ball at his feet, and he's devastating doing that. But you know that those op- you can't play that way if you're a Chelsea striker. The, the defense will sit deep against you, whoever you're playing. They will challenge you to break them down, um, and they will say Lukaku's only getting the ball with his back to goal, which is not where he's strongest. So Tuchel wants to make that better. He wants to work out how to to fit Lukaku into this team. But I don't know what the easy answer is. I think if you had your first choice wingbacks as well, Reese James and Ben Chilwell, stretching the pitch out wide, that opens up space for Lukaku. But I've hankered after the idea. I'm sure he will remember this game as well when Lukaku devastated Nacho Monreal when he was playing for Everton against uh, Arsenal as a sort of right winger. And he did it. He's done it in patches for Man United as well. I'd like to see that. But uh, I don't think that's kind of the, the long-term solution. So at the moment, I don't really know how they fix it, but I do know that there's a will within Chelsea to, to try and get this right and not to just give up. Yeah, this is uh, really interesting to hear, especially given you know that I was witness to, to what happened between Tuchel and PSG, sort of how that relationship between him and the club and the players started and how it degenerated later on. And actually, there's some interesting parallels between Tuchel's behavior with Lukaku uh, and his behavior with Cavani, because again, you know, sort of the, the, the personal relationship between the two was always quite good. It's just that Tuchel was was basically challenging Cavani to almost fit more into PSG's system, and it's it's really unfortunate for Cavani that that COVID happened uh, when it did in in footballing terms, because he was actually just starting to make his way back into PSG's side, could have potentially salvaged him another year or two in the French capital. Uh, you know, but it was cut short uh, and we didn't actually get to see whether Tuchel was almost able to rebuild Cavani, uh, you know, after what had been quite a difficult injury for him to recover from back in the 2018 World Cup. You know, he was never quite the same player after that. Obviously, different ages between the two players, but similar star status uh, within their respective uh, clubs. So, you know, I I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Lukaku is sort of forever going to be uh, a face that doesn't fit with Chelsea. I just think it's a question of, you know, giving the power to Tuchel, uh, you know, to to sort of sort it out in his own way. That That is the way to keep uh, the German onside, uh, if that's what Chelsea want to do. JJ, with, with, with uh, Ziyech uh, taking a knock, Kovacic as well, do you think that increases the odds or changes the dynamic of whether or not you play Lukaku in this? And do you think... Uh, who, do, who do you have as the favorites in, in this matchup? Obviously, Liverpool on a tear right now and continuing to close the gap in the league. This is a huge opportunity for a domestic trophy, which they haven't uh, gotten uh, in a long time. But it seems like their focus maybe elsewhere. Obviously, you're in a final. You're going to focus on it. But kind of give me your take on this, this matchup. Yeah, I mean, I think if I had to pick a favorite right now, I'd probably have Liverpool just shading it over Chelsea. But then again, Chelsea were obviously thinking ahead to this game when they sent the team out against Lille because there was no uh, Jorginho either. So I guess you could say that Tucker was perhaps, uh, you know, keeping Lukaku and Jorginho fresh uh, to, to come into this game, knowing that he would start with both, uh, you know, but also at the same time. You know, I guess we will see what he takes out of that uh, little performance. I don't, I don't think that Chelsea really needed to excel at any point. You know, Lille offered a bit of sort of token resistance, but in the end were broken down and the, the gap in quality was quite evident. But I think it's one thing, you know, Chelsea sort of being relatively comfortable against a Lille side really struggling uh, in the aftermath of their, their unexpected title success in France and going up against, you know, sort of the machine that is Liverpool, which Klopp has 
you know, sort of purring once again after a very dodgy spell uh, towards the end of last season. So for me, I, th- I think that I would slightly favour Liverpool in this one, but you know, wouldn't I wouldn't rule Chelsea out, especially when given you know sort of what we saw from them uh, under Tuchel last season, especially with the Champions League final. You know, when it's a big match, uh, especially when Tuchel. I mean, Jimmy mentioned this the other day. I think that Tuchel's always in his element when the team that he's coaching is slightly viewed as underdogs. And I think that coming into this one, like I said, many people might just favour Liverpool ahead of Chelsea and that will really play into his hands. I think that's ben, a really strong I, I got point, a question. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was going to follow up gonna... on that with you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Cheap. No, no, it was, it was basically uh, on, on that of just that underdog mentality. I mean, this is a guy who's got four trophies in, I don't know, just over a year. But somehow, from the moment they lose their first game, there's always a complaint about their system or the style of play or what's their best 11. But somehow, they continue to figure it out. Obviously, they've fallen back in the leagues uh, so far this year. But do you think, do you agree with that sort of underdog mentality is, is, the be- is where they're best placed, even if they're winning trophies? Yeah, I think that's that spot on what Jonathan was saying. That, that, that Chelsea, it kind of allows them to play a way that better suits the players they have, which is to to drop deep, to hold, you know, that, that five-man defence and and then kind of hit on the counter. It, it, they are struggling to break teams down, but they are not like, they're not struggling at all to stop teams getting good opportunities. And it will be harder against Liverpool, as JJ says, than it would be against Lille. But don't forget, Lille kind of got to lots of good positions and couldn't get any further. They couldn't get good shots away at all, not a single good shot in that game. This will. This is the sort of thing Tuchel likes. My concern for Chelsea is is down that left flank. No Ben Chilwell. Um, Malangsar is not a wing back. Obviously, when he plays, they play in a four. Uh, Marcus Alon- Alonso is also not a wing back. He just plays there, but he's a de- he's a winger or a wide target man or whatever. But he can't defend, um, it, which we saw in uh, in midweek. And it's just Trent Alexander Arnold and. Uh, Mohamed Salary's got to worry about. So that would be my big worry for Chelsea is, is how on earth they protect their uh, their left flank. But if that can survive, then I think Chelsea might just be able to hold Liverpool and nick it at the other end. Well said. Well, let's move on to the Premier League. We've got uh, a lot to talk about and obviously full transparency. Uh, we're taping this before the Arsenal versus Wolves matchup. But let's talk, uh, JJ, about uh, Leeds Spurs. Obviously, two managers in crisis. Uh, Conte continues to give us the entertainment of Jose Mourinho-esque uh, type of pressers. I know a lot of stuff is getting taken out of context of what entire interviews are, but it certainly seems dire uh, for both these managers in terms of the situation uh, that you're in, they're, they're in. Do you think we're in the middle of a crisis at Spurs, uh, or or is it just sort of people looking for for words to run with right now? I mean, honestly, from the outside looking in, Spurs never seem very far away from a crisis, even when things are going reasonably well on the pitch. They always seem to make uh, issues for themselves. Uh, You know, it's it's sort of been a recurring theme over the last couple of years. It doesn't surprise me sort of what's going on with Conte at the moment, but does get a bit repetitive uh, after a while. You know, he knew what he was walking into. And also, I think all of this really is designed at the end of the day. I think I was saying it uh, a couple of days ago on on one of the other podcasts that... uh, I think this is designed towards him getting what he wants in the summer. In fact, it was when I was chatting with Fabrizio Romano on Monday. I think it's designed towards him getting what he wants in the summer so that he can have a new Spurs, you know, a new look team, uh, you know, a revamped squad ahead of uh, ahead of next season. I mean, sure, there's still that stuff left to play for this campaign and it doesn't help when you're, you know, getting unexpected defeats against the likes of Burnley. But also at the same time, you know, for, for, for Conte's methods to really work, uh, you know, for the majority of the squad to buy in, there's going to have to be a lot of turnover. There's going to have to be a lot of those players uh, turfed out. And, you know, with, uh, with with Bielsa, unfortunately, this is part of, uh, I guess, part of the charm uh, of Bielsa. You know, you get a fantastic period, uh, you know, period that fans will never forget uh, where his teams, you know, are willing to die for him on the pitch. And then you get sort of the end, the death throes of it, where the players just can't give anymore. Uh, And, you know, I think that that's what we're seeing now. I find the rumours linking Jesse Marsh uh, with the Leeds United post for this summer really interesting. We'll see where that goes. But for me, it doesn't surprise me to see sort of things heading towards what could be quite a bitter end, uh, you know, for Bielsa at least, because, you know, let's not forget what he has done with them. Uh, You know, he, he has brought them back to the Premier League. Uh, he has, you know, given English football sort of a new, 
sort of footballing culture to to have appreciated. But also at the same time, long term, I don't think that he is the man to sort of push Leeds on uh, any further than he already has. So I think Leeds are probably more in crisis than Spurs. Uh, I really enjoyed JJ doing everything he could to say this happens a lot with Tottenham without using the word Spursy or without doing that Giorgio Chiellini quote, it is the history of the Tottenham. Um, it's fascinating. You know, I was at the Etihad on on Saturday and waiting, you know, talking about press conferences, waiting for Antonio Conte forever just to, you know, end his celebrations. He was a nice long interviews for anyone that wanted it. We were going about an hour and a half before he turned up for his pre-match press conference. And he could hardly speak because he'd been screaming so loudly and celebrating. And I think, obviously, we do have to remember this is a manager that always says he feels every defeat, you know, like like a death or however he phrases it. He is an emotive manager. And I think what he said after Burnley was emotional, not rational. You know, realistically, he knows he's not just going to up and leave after four months. But I do think... He he is and, and he is trying to play politics here, but he's doing it with all the subtlety of a, a sledgehammer. It is <laughs> however many weeks, three and a half weeks, four weeks since the transfer window closed. He has already said to Sky Italia he was not happy with the transfer business that was done. He everyone knew from the minute he was hired that that he would want money spent. And he also knew that Tottenham would struggle to do that, especially if he couldn't get them in the Champions League. Um, this season, which is really important if if Tottenham want to develop a squad that's good enough for Conte, and you know, right now, it, I, but there is I some like truth. There is some truth, right, to 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 the idea that that these players are the same players that every manager has struggled with. Uh, yes, it's a lot on him, but at a certain point, you do start to say these players aren't the ones that work either for the system or for the quality that they expect at Spurs. Well, but. So he, a lot of the complaints have been about, oh, we lost four players, but he let them all go. Yeah. Giovanni Lo Celso <laughs> yeah, was a squad it. player who he just said, you can go, uh, which which is okay. But then he lost Ndombele and he lost Deli Alley, And you watch their games now and you go, because there's no creativity in midfield. I mean, I can see why he's very unhappy that he didn't get a right wing back. But also, you do know this is this is what happens when you join any club midway through the season. And he said that. So it's, it's hard to sympathise with his frustrations. And I think actually when you look at what Tottenham fans are saying, they're increasingly in that boat of just like, we don't need this all the time. You know, not after every single defeat can we have yeah. Antonio Conte threatening to quit. It's it's not constructive. I th- I'm sure things will get back to a more even keel against Leeds because Leeds are rubbish at the moment. But... Well, well, yeah. What's your what's your, what's your, what's your take on this one? Do you think that they can get three points out of this? Obviously, a lead side that's not truly clear of a relegation battle and struggling in themselves. Do you think this is where you see a Spurs bounce back? Yeah, there's there's practically no more perfect opponent for Tottenham except maybe Man City than than or, Leeds or, or Villa. Yeah, that's true. They do love Villa, <laughs> um, but you know, a team that uh, that is willing to go one on one, that is willing to commit numbers high up the pitch. Spurs did such a good job against City of drawing. City up and then hitting it quick to Kane and, and Son. And they'll do that and they might well score plenty of goals against Leeds. So I think it might we might be feeling come Monday morning that the crisis is easing, but it can't ever be one defeat away from the manager saying, I can't do this job anymore. That needs to change. And Spurs need to tell Conte it has to change. JJ, for this specific say- matchup... I mean, just just adding one final point to that. I mean, also, is there not an argument that Spurs kind of need to move on from the fact that Pochettino took them to the Champions League final a couple of years ago and sort of constantly comparing everything since then, you know, mm, to that absolute pinnacle of, of his time in charge? Because I think that's a, that, that's a dangerous game. That's arguably why, uh, you know, we've seen Spurs cycle through so many coaches, uh, Mourinho, Nuno, and now Conte in such a short space of time, because I think that, you know, they they almost sort of expect that because they've done it once, they can do it again with sort of minimal changes. Whereas, you know, it was a really impressive feat for Pochettino to actually get them to that Champions League final. Uh, you know, so I mean, for me, in terms of matchups coming into this game, uh, I mean, I, I to be honest, I think Leeds are going to be outgunned pretty much all over the pitch. Uh, but, you know, if there is a... a, a 
an area uh, where Spurs are sort of questionable. Um, you know, as, as James was saying, they still don't have that dominant midfield. Uh, you know, and Leeds, uh, you know, it has been their strength in the past, but I know that they've they've sort of, you know, been missing some key figures at times over the course of the season. So, you know, I think that the midfield battle will definitely shape the outcome of this game, but I really can't see anything other than a Spurs win. Well, let's touch base uh, real quick on on the West Ham Wolves game. As I mentioned before, we're recording this before Wolves play against Arsenal. So there are some implications as to to how they prep and who they play in this matchup. But this is the the, the battle of the two teams that uh, everyone thinks won't finish in the top four, but are continuing to prove people wrong. James Binge, who do you have in this matchup? I mean, again, obviously, we're we're talking about this before uh, Wolves have played Arsenal, but they have been such a tough test for opponents of late that you do kind of have to to lean towards them. West Ham are wobbling a little bit. I think the Kurt Zuma affair has has knocked them off kilter, um, and they're very very reliant on Jared Bowen at the moment. Mikhail Antonio is not giving them what he he was earlier in the season. Whereas Wolves, it's not always fun to watch, but they're building something solid. They're really hard to break down, really hard to score against. And although they don't get a lot of chances, you know, players hey, they've scored twice in the last two games. They scored twice. It's impressive. And Pedro Neto, who was phenomenal last season, he should be, he's definitely not going to be fully fit, but he may well be able to play in some capacity. I really like him. I think, yeah, that that attack will get better because we saw early in the season when they were all out attack and can't defend at the other end. The, the large can construct a decent attack. I don't think either of these teams will be seriously in the mix for, for Champions League football come the end of the season. But I think Wolves will, will probably keep this momentum going and, and end the season on a real high and with the right recruitment next season and they tend to get their recruitment right. They could be a real force again. Well, plus 270, JJ, to Wolves. It seems like that they're putting West Ham as the heavy favorites at home in this one, and it just sort of feels a little bit off. Do you think Wolves have the capability to go away from home and and get a result? Uh, The draw, I think, was plus 235, if I saw that right, plus 270 for a win? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know... the odds are largely based on, you know, what's gone on in the, the the season as a whole, as opposed to sort of what's been going on lately. I agree with James. I think that West Ham do look uh, a bit ropey. They don't look half as assured as they did uh, sort of in the first half of the season. And Wolves, you know, yes, they, you know, they they are one of those teams that nobody in the Premier League really wants to come up against at the moment. They like make life very difficult for, for, for all of their opponents. And, you know, despite the fact that they might not be, uh, you know, a prolific side that bangs in sort of three, four, five per game. Uh, you know, they are a very, very difficult team to break down, uh, you know, and, and one that can hurt you when you don't make the most of your chances. And West Ham at this moment in time, like James said, Mikel Antonio, not, you know, as nearly as prolific a, a, as he has been in the past, uh, you know, and, and quite overly, overly reliant on one or two players. And, you know, that's quite dangerous, especially when you're going into a match against a side who, you know, kind of looking like they're going to start rivaling you for, you know, your place in the table. I mean, what, there's two points between them before Wolves have uh, that clash later on today. Uh, and Wolves have two games in hand over West Ham. So, you know, I think this is a game that West Ham can't afford to lose. I don't see them winning it, though. Wow, well said. Well, Des, if you want to throw up the rest of the uh, the, the fixtures uh, in the upcoming weekend on the screen, we'll have just some final thoughts from JJ and James Bench. Uh James, is there is there any other other matchups that that you're looking at for the weekend that that are intriguing to you or ones that you want to want to touch on? The two Manchester teams could have a, a little fun role to play in in the relegation battle. You would think that Everton are going to find it really really tough to beat Man City, and I'm just looking at, at teams like Everton as Newcastle start picking up points, as um, as Burnley start picking up points, and and they're against Palace, and you know those are games where these teams could get dragged. Everton could really get dragged into it. I think they probably are already dragged into it. And maybe the same with, with Palace, you know, as for Watford, Roy Hodgson is, he's been getting a little bit better, but then bad result uh, against Crystal Palace in midweek, you know, can, can they turn it into more of a sort of, you know, can they involve themselves in this scrap at the moment? It feels like Watford and, and Norwich are gone, but I think maybe if you pick up like sort of three points, at Old Trafford and take advantage of a team that put in one of the worst performances I've ever seen by a Champions League team in midweek. 
like Watford should be going there thinking we can beat this team. We beat them last time out. They looked diabolical against Atletico Madrid. Let's give this a go and see what happens. But that's not really Hodgson's style. He's moaning all the time about Saar and Dennis and Josh King. And I'm like, these are the guys that might keep you in the league. Stop complaining that they're not dropping back enough. JJ, anything from the weekend you want to mention? Yeah, I mean, uh, in in honor of Luis Miguel Trigueira, I'd be remiss not to not to mention our beloved Villa because for us, I hey think JJ it's, and uh, I both, hey JJ and I, I mean uh, James Benj and I both haven't talked about Arsenal at all, yeah, but here we go, good. you know, honor, yeah. <laughs> Well, as much as I'd love to bait you and you guys and throw Arsenal into it, I'm I'm going to go with Villa because I feel it's a really, really, uh, you know, important uh, game. This one, you know, Brighton away, not easy. Six points ahead of Villa in the table, but Villa, if they want to salvage anything from this season, and it's looking increasingly bleak. Uh, you know, they really need to win this and move themselves back towards the top half of the table because being realistic, Europe's gone. That that won't be uh, an ambition until at least next season. But the, the even more worrying thing is all that kind of positivity that surrounded Steven Gerrard's arrival, uh, you know, Coutinho coming in, Luca Dean coming in, you know, suddenly it's gone. Villa look very, very dry, very stale on the pitch. Uh Again, defensively suspect, which is something that's only really going to be able to sort out, you know, this coming summer. So I think for for Villa, this is a this is a huge game against Brighton. And if if Brighton get the win, uh, which I'd imagine is more likely than Villa getting a win, you know, Villa are one of those teams that could also be sucked down into that uh, battle late on. That's well said. Uh, and that wraps up our, our our chat on the Premier League. Let's let's now shift over quickly to uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, I don't expect either of you two to be the out-and-out experts. Uh, is, it, is, but this, there is, is this, this going to be a kit ranking? Oh, I do yeah, hope it, so. I like that listen, pink one. Who's, who did the pink one? That's the, that's are, they the, all, uh, global, are they all done by Adidas still? That's the, is it, that's is the it, global... <laughs> go ahead. Is it into Miami's kit? I, I do like some of these. ML. Oh, Portland. Des is telling me it's Portland's pink kit. Big fan, big fan. Yeah, exactly. I, that's that's the Euro style of like, how do we get in the MLS conversation? Well, the kit preview always works. Uh, we can we can we can rank rank those. But MLS kicks off 2022 uh, season this weekend. You can uh, check out LME's comprehensive season preview with Max Bredos and Paul Tenorio on YouTube and the podcast feed. But real quickly, from either of you, uh, based on 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 whatever you know, however much you know, is there are any of these matchups attractive? To you guys, I'll go with LAFC Colorado. For me, LAFC obviously has Steve Chirundle, a former teammate of mine, is now the manager there. Colorado, a former manager of mine, um, uh, is coaching them. They won the Western Conference last year. I think that's a good matchup. We also saw Kellen Acosta, a big national team player, uh, traded over the offseason uh, to LAFC. It'll be interesting to see how he matches up against his former club. Do any of these look attractive to you, JJ? Well, you guys know that I'm a San Jose Earthquakes ultra myself, so I'm uh, looking forward to that opener against New York Red Bulls. Um, you know, I've, I'm curious to see what happens with Chicago, given the the players that they've added. You know, Zichos was was an interesting addition before Shakiri comes in, and really, I'm just wondering. Shakiri for me is going to go one of two ways. He could have like a Giovinco esque influence on MLS. Or he could just pass through it and be a complete passenger because didn't really see enough from Leon to suggest that he's going to go and impose himself anywhere anytime soon. I mean, I can understand why Liverpool got rid of him, but for Leon to have moved him on that quickly, uh, you know, I think uh, suggests that perhaps, uh, you know, he's not as motivated as he could be on the pitch. We know that sort of playing for Switzerland at the World Cup is a major motivation for him, and hopefully that'll be enough to 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 get him to hit the ground running. But uh, for me, Chicago are definitely a team I'll be keeping an eye on uh, this coming season. And that's not just because of the crest or the kit. Well, back in uh, 2019, I, I went to Charlotte's Bank of America Stadium for an International Champions Cup pre-season game. I think it was Arsenal against Fiorentina. And I was sat there going, well, yeah, there's no way you could have an MLS team here. They'd, they'd never fill the thing. But apparently I'm wrong and know absolutely nothing about MLS. Which Very wrong. And yeah, I'm excited to see what Charlotte FC can do. And and is that going to be a record crowd for an MLS game in their in their home debut? That is a good question that I don't have the answer to. But there's been <laughs> some. Be I mean, for, for for a home debut, yeah, it could be it could be. I know it took a while for for the the Benz Stadium to open and and things like that. So it depends on how you define that. But it, it it's expected to be a, a big crowd. And from a youth soccer standpoint, North Carolina is a massive, massive market. So the fan base is big. 
you have a lot of different communities, you know, a lot of different suburb communities with with a huge interest in in the sport. So I think that they'll do a good job of of pulling in uh, the fan bases from the wider state. Any final thoughts on that, uh, JJ? Sorry, I just hijacked uh, some of what you were uh, saying there. But um, if not, we're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Syria. We're going to talk La Liga. We're going to talk Bundesliga. Liga. And we're going to wrap this thing up with some final thoughts at the end. We will be right back. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hey, everyone. This is Jimmy Conrad, your favorite former U.S. men's national team player and the host of the Call It What You Want podcast. And I'm here to tell you that Viore is a versatile clothing brand that speaks my language. It's inspired from the coastal California lifestyle, just like me. Its products stand the test of time, just like me. And also, just like me, it endeavors to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Viore gear is designed to look great in everyday life, while also being perfect for any workout activity. I'm currently rocking the men's Sunday performance jogger, and don't let the name deceive you. You can wear these babies any day of the week and in any situation. I'm talking going to the office, running errands, the gym, whatever your heart desires, because Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viori.com slash sports. That's V-U-O-R-I dot slash sports. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Again, go to viori.com slash sports and discover the versatility of Viori clothing. All right, everyone, we are back. And uh, guess what? Serie A continues to be on Paramount+. Plus. We're going to go to Serie A right now, boys. Uh, Lazio playing Napoli on Sunday. The Milan teams are in action on Friday due to the upcoming uh, Coppa Italia uh, derby. So let's start with Na- Na- Lazio-Napoli. Lazio are on a little bit of a-, a quiet streak right now playing this Napoli side who haven't uh, been able to really take advantage of-, of the two Milan teams slipping up over the last couple of weeks. JJ, we'll start with you. Uh, I mean, Lazio, do you think that they have the ability to, 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 to get a result here? They're playing at home against Napoli on Sunday. Uh, do, do you think that they have a, a capability to or an ability to use the form that they have to get a result against Napoli? I mean, I definitely think they have the capability to, to, to get the results. It's really just a question of which uh, performance Marita Sarri gets out of his players. They've been pretty inconsistent for the majority of the season. You know, they've they've posted some very impressive results, but they've also had a few shockers as well. The the thing that I, my main observation about this game is that Napoli, they, they seem to respond, they, they almost seem to play at the level of their opponents right now. I don't know if that's because of sort of the, you know, the sort of fluctuating availability of, of certain key players, notably uh, Aussie men. Um, but, you know, they just seem to, it, when they play against somebody who really takes the game to them, uh, you know, gives them an opportunity to play high-octane football, they're capable of doing that. But it's not them who will dictate the the tempo. And actually, with the ball, they're, you know, they, they don't probe. They're not as purposeful as, uh, you know, I think that they could be. And I think Spalletti will be quite worried about that. Frustrating as well, because like you said, they've thrown away a couple of opportunities to eat away at that uh, that gap at, uh, at the moment. So, you know, I think it really depends on the performance that Lazio put in, because if Lazio sort of throw down the gauntlet to them in sort of the opening 15 to 20 minutes, then I definitely think Napoli will respond to that. But if they don't, uh, you know, I think that this is potentially a dangerous one for Napoli because they could be lulled into a false sense of security where Lazio's quality tells at any time, uh, you know, and they potentially get the win. Equally, I, I do think building on what JJ said, that that potentially a team like Lazio, if they play in the real Sarri fashion, that they're kind of attempting and they're not always successful at. But a, a, a Sarri team makes the game a bit more stretched, a bit more open. They're willing to commit numbers forward. And for a Napoli team that, as JJ says, are quite reactive, don't like to set the agenda in a game, potentially that could be just what they're after. We saw against Barcelona that Ozymen is is great. If you can hit him quickly into the channels, he can attack from there. That would suit them really nicely. And so I think potentially Lazio end up being a good opponent. But we've got to say, I mean, for both these teams, of course, but 
I think for Napoli, it's going to be a really charged game on Thursday against Barcelona that we, we won't have seen by the as we're recording. How much does that weigh them down, whatever the result? Because it's going to be a hard game and it's going to be an emotionally charged game at, that, at the Diego Maradona Stadium. I think that's kind of the challenge they have, whereas... You know, AC Milan and, and Inter Milan, whichever one there w- wins that game. Both of them are, are coming into it a bit fresher, a bit less emotionally drained. I think this could be a, a tough weekend for Napoli. I guess the advantage is that maybe only one of the two teams can really pull away at most. So um, maybe that's the plus side for Napoli. Well, let's put some the, the rest of the fixtures up on the screen. And, and uh, if, if anything... Uh kind of catches your eye, uh, JJ or James Benj, uh, feel free to jump in on any other matchups coming over the weekend. Um, and as we bring that up right now, obviously got Milan playing against Udinese uh, on Friday, as I mentioned, Inter Milan against Genoa playing away from home, uh, Inter Milan going away from home there. And then you've got the rest of the matchups, Empoli, Juventus, um, uh, which seems to be uh, a, a one-sided matchup, but Juventus has obviously not been at their best, at least in the last seven days or so. Obviously, with the I'm 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 a little skewed with the with the injury of Weston McKinney. But JJ, is there anything in, uh, from a from a matchup standpoint over the weekend uh, in Serie A that you're looking at? Yeah, I agree with you. The Empoli Juventus is uh, interesting, especially because they won't know what the outcome of that uh, Lazio Napoli clash is, and it's a chance for Juventus to close the gap a little bit. Uh, you know, on the on on the top three. But Empoli have this really weird habit. I, I remember they were really up and down in my power rankings when I was writing them earlier in the season because they'd struggle normally against the team sort of in and around their level, maybe even a bit below. But they have this habit of getting really unexpected results, a bit like Spezia when they, they'd sort of almost claim scalps as opposed to, you know, sort of like useful points. Uh, and I think that, you know, Empoli, especially with sort of Juve, you know, they're obviously going to have to, you know, consider rotating the players a bit so they don't get any more injuries like McKenney's, but also, you know, because they're still fighting uh, on multiple fronts with the, uh, with the champions league as well. So for me, I think that that's potentially a banana skin because Empoli could do with a little bit of a boost to take them back into mid table as well. Whereas Juve, you know, it's already a fairly significant gap between them and the top three, given that Inter have a game in hand over them. Uh, and Napoli are already seven points ahead of them. So I think that's a really sort of low-key important one for for Juve coming up. I should just hop in and correct my total brain fart that I had where I, I got confused with our Coppa Italia match between um, Milan and uh, Inter and, and somehow had in my head that they were doing another derby uh, in Serie A. So I should correct that. But also I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Sassuolo fresh from beating Inter uh, in midweek. Always a, a fun team, a team that punches so far above their weight. James Horncastle wrote excellently uh, about this in the Athletic. But also, you know, that front three, it's a, it's a joy to watch when they're in the mood. You know, Skamaka, Berardi, Raspadori. The talent level of young players, and I know that Berardi's not a youngster anymore. It feels like he's been one forever. Um, for, a, for a team this small, you know, a, a tiny little town in uh, Emilia-Romagna, I believe, it's incredible what they achieve and, and they always put good football out on the pitch. So, so them against Fiorentina, that's a really interesting matchup for me and uh, one under the radar that I'd be keeping an eye on. Salernitana as well against Bologna is, is kind of a curious one given that they're bottom of the table, but they've got two games in hand over a Genoa team that haven't won in the league since they were taken over by American owners. Uh, you know, that, you know, if they can get a result against Bologna, who, you know, have suffered some dubious results over the course of the season, uh, you know, that could potentially be the beginning of, you know, quite the salvation story, given that Salernitana were hours away from going out of existence, uh, you know, on sort of on New Year's Eve and, uh, you know, were saved at the last minute, did a raft uh, of transfer work in January and now suddenly, uh, you know, have this glimmer of hope that they might actually still stay in Serie A. That's why I love you, boys, because we're getting to that time of year where we can't leave those uh, relegation battles out of the conversation. In fact, they're sometimes more exciting if you don't have a massive uh, title clash uh, to, to bring up. So I appreciate you guys contextualizing that for everybody else. Now let's do a quick little whip around the rest of Europe. Uh, starting in La Liga, we have the Grand Derby Sevilla taking on Batiste and, and Barcelona against Athletic Bilbao. Uh, is there any uh, do, do either of those matchups uh, for you, uh, James Bench, uh, get you excited, or is there something else in La Liga that that you've got your eye on for this weekend? I mean, the Grand Derby is is one of the 
best games in Europe. Maybe not one that our US audience will be familiar with because Betis and Sevilla, they're, they're powerhouses of Italian... Of Italian? Oh, I'm having a complete mare at the moment. Uh, powerhouses of Spanish football. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the league there is so stratified that you tend not to see them winning uh, La Liga. Maybe Sevilla, they've certainly given competition over the last few years. But two teams that are that are playing fantastic football, getting results, uh, and will also be drained and exhausted from their Europa League commitments, which always leads to more mistakes, more drama. And, and that's what you want from derbies. I mean, look at the table right there. You've got Sevilla on 51 points. Betis can, can reel them in. And I think for them, they'll know that the title is almost certainly beyond them, 11 points off Real Madrid. But I think almost it will mean no less to Betis that they could put an almighty spanner in Sevilla's title challenge by winning uh, away from home in that game. So this game will be fantastic. It's probably, I think, the best the best game on the continental fixture list this week. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, James said that uh, about Betis and Sevilla being, you know, sort of, sort of two of Spain's biggest clubs. But a lot of people don't really recognise that because obviously they're not winning the titles like your Reals, like your Barcelonas. Uh, and uh, there's actually an exclusive with Andres Guardado of Betis up on the website at the moment, which I wrote uh, ahead of their Europa League clash uh, second leg with Zenit. It's actually a huge week for Betis because they've got that second leg against Zenit, which could put them into the latter stages of the Europa League. Uh, but then they've also got the derby at the weekend, which could be huge for, you know, a number of reasons, their own Champions League bid, you know, frustrating Sevilla as well, keeping themselves away from Barcelona, you know, but also next week they've got the Copa del Rey semi-final second leg and they, that could be their first shot at silverware since uh, 2004, five when Joaquin was just coming through uh, as a young, fresh faced kid. So you you know, he was 35. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it feels like he's been around forever. And I mean, it's because of him that I bought my Betis shirt, which is about 20 years old, which I've got in the, in, in the, uh, in the wardrobe in the other room. Uh, but, you know, it, it is a fantastic story. And I urge people to read the Guardado piece because he sort of explains or tries to explain because he actually just basically tells people that they should come and watch a game at uh, Estadio Benito Villa Marin uh, because it's just, it's so unique in terms of its atmosphere. And then he, Basically, he says, once you've experienced that, you know, whether you intend to go to the game or whether you just happen upon it, uh, you know, you can't help but be affected by the emotion that Betis as a club creates. And, you know, there's there are a few more passionate cities in Europe about their football than Seville. And, you know, the fact as well that uh, the that, you know, they, they're looking at a potential final that could be played in Seville, you know, that could land them a bit of silverware. I, you know, I think that they will be so, so motivated. And Manuel Pellegrini has got a very good crop of players playing some very good football. And they're tying down some of those key players to extended contracts. So they really are building strongly for the future at the moment. Any final thoughts uh, from the Liga? I feel like that context that you guys gave is really fantastic and, and helps to... Uh contextualize a little bit of, of, of the league itself. And, and, and also we saw what the table looked like and, and outside of these matchups, do you think that this is just one of these one-off years where Sevilla is in the position that they are, Real Betis is challenging. You've got Atletico Madrid and Barcelona and, and next year, everything sort of writes itself into being, Oh, a two, uh, two horse race or a three teams uh, that you expect at the top of the table. Or, or, or do you think that this could be a new norm considering that there has been a sort of a massive shift in La Liga. I guess that's a lot of big questions to answer, but just curious. I think in the short term, this could this this style of La Liga where, you know, we should say Real Madrid have been fine, not amazing, but they've done a decent job and they've given themselves a good cushion. But I think in the short term, it's perfectly imaginable that Barcelona end up in the pack, Madrid, Atletico Madrid end up in the chasing pack that they're both financially in a really awkward position. And also, you know, they are still work trying to understand how their footballing identity works in 2022. And I don't think that will all change this summer equally. You know, when you take a step back, there are three teams in, in Europe whose broadcast rights are this, uh, comparable to the premier league, any team in the premier league. And that's Atletico, that's Real Madrid and that's Barcelona. Once the, they tidy up their wage bill, and we kind of still have to assume they might, both of those teams end up with this financial muscle, and especially Barcelona, but even Atletico, they end up with this financial muscle that Sevilla can't 
match, no matter how good Monchi's transfer businesses are, the same at Betis, it will all write itself back to money winning you points and money winning you leagues. But the next few years are a great opportunity for Sevilla. And you see that in the players they're signing, that they think this might be it. This might, might be our great chance to go for La Liga. Same for Betis, same for Villarreal. Um, I think they need a better manager, but that's an aside. But yeah, there's a moment <laughs> that would have, that, that, would have been, that would offend Jimmy Conrad to criticise uh, the manager at uh, at Villarreal. But uh, JJ, for you, is, is is do you feel the same thing, uh, or or do you feel differently? No, I mean I largely agree with James. I do think that uh, you know your Real Jabasas, your Atleticos, they will write themselves in probably in the next year or two. I'm really curious. To, I mean, obviously from a PSG perspective, but also from the sort of La Liga landscape perspective as to what happens with Kylian Mbappe this summer, because that's potentially a game changer for Real, uh, you know, for La Liga as well, to sort of have the leading star, arguably the leading star in world football now that Messi and Ronaldo are sort of, you know, almost in terminal decline really in, in terms of their form. Uh, and, you know, if, he's, if he doesn't go, to, to Real, you know, that leaves a big, big hole, both in Real's plans and also La Liga's, you know, judging by Javier Tebas's uh, very public comments. So I'm curious to see how that one plays out. And also, you know, if Barcelona's sort of new money continues to flow in, because if they can continue to build in the way that they've done over the last couple of months, then, yeah, you'd expect them to be back in the reckoning, uh, you know, sort of setting the pace uh, next season. With Real, I think it's a bit more complicated than that, because having seen them up close recently against PSG, there's so many aging players in that team who have had better days. Uh, and whether you put Mbappe in that squad or not, there's still so much rebuilding to do there. And yeah, I'm sure Real will find, uh, you know, the money to be able to to, to have that rebuild, you know, to, to, to pull off that facelift. But also at the same time, they still have to consider, you know, sort of the ways around the, you know, the, the salary cap limits and stuff like that. So I think it's more likely that Barca and potentially Atleti, uh, you know, are more competitive as of next season than Real. I think Real actually might drop off a little bit in the short term, depending on what happens this summer. Well said. Well, let's move on to our uh, some final thoughts. We'll we'll bundle up uh, Bundesliga and Liga. Obviously, we've got on the run of shore, of course, Augsburg, which we continue to expect Ricardo Pepe to score goals. He's not. He's not even in the starting team versus Dortmund, which we expected uh, our boy Gio Reyna to be back. He's not. He got injured again. Uh, we also got Wolfsburg uh, taking on Gladbach, another uh, American derby of players not in form or on the bench. So we can skip over those. But is there any other Bundesliga matchups and or Ligue 1 matchups? We're talking about Lyon-Lille, which I know is a big a big game for you, JJ, and Strasbourg-Nice. Uh, which one do you want to, or where do you want to go with this? I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot to be excited about in France at the moment. I mean, obviously, uh, PSG's clash with Saint-Étienne is not, uh, you know, top of anybody's list for, for, for this weekend. But, you know, that will bring people's attention to the race for, for the Champions League. And it's really starting to heat up. You know, you've got Marseille, Nice, Strasbourg all in contention. I mean, it's potentially a huge game because if Strasbourg can get uh, the three points, and we've seen Nice... Uh, you know, sort of almost get the more difficult results that are not necessarily expected to and then lose against some of the the more unexpected sides, uh, you know, that would really, uh, you know, sort of cut that gap even further. And, and the possibility of having Strasbourg anywhere close to the Champions League is extremely exciting. I mean, we were talking about how emotionally charged Betis are as a club and, and Seville as a city. Strasbourg, honestly, I mean, try and tune in and watch a game at some point if they're the only team on because watching the atmosphere at the Stade de la Meno is, ju is just incredible. This is a stadium that holds sort of mid-20,000 of fans and I think there's only about 1,500, 2,000 seats in the stadium that are not held by season ticket holders. You know, they really call on that kind of fervent level of support at home and it, it really is a fantastic thing to witness week in, week out, especially when you consider how they rebuilt uh, in the last 10 years as well, coming back from the regional leagues all the way up to Ligue 1 and now potentially knocking on the door of the Champions League. So that would be where I'm looking this weekend if uh, if I'm a neutral fan. Well said. I mean, I'm not uh, JJ, any final thoughts for you? Yeah, I, I don't want to force your hand on anything. So what, what, what do you want to wrap up uh, this, this show with? 
Yeah, I mean, we all know that the second best league in Europe after England's top league is England's second best league, the uh, the championship. And a, a nice little game to look forward to for, for people that are interested in the playoffs and the, the promotion race. Now, QPR and Blackburn have both got a lot of ground to cover to make it up to, to Bournemouth, who have an awful lot of games in hand. Blackburn are struggling, but QPR and Blackburn, both great names of English football and Premier League in the 90s in particular, um, both have had fallen on really hard times, financial mismanagement, but they're turning it around. Third and fifth in the championship, doing amazing stuff, young English talent. Um, it's a game to watch that, and, and you might, might want to start familiarising yourselves with these teams because in a few months' time, we'll be looking at the playoff race, and it's going to be good, and we're going to have some great names back in the Premier League once we get rid of Norwich and Watford. Well said. Well, that that is it for us. Thank you so much, James Benz, Jonathan Johnson, and thank you all for watching and or listening. Follow the Kegel Also podcast on Twitter at Kegel Also Pod. Subscribe to the Kegel Also page on YouTube and hit the notification bell. And of course, subscribe to Kegel Also wherever you get your pod, podcast. And on behalf of myself, James Benz, Jonathan Johnson, our producer, Des Norris, we will see you guys soon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.